Welcome to Hunting for Nova Sparkus by Coho Creative. Welcome back. I'm Ellen Craven. Hi, everyone. I'm Lane Remke. Have you ever worked for or sat on the board of a nonprofit? You might say they have a hard time being innovative. Today's guest would completely disagree. Emily Taylor is going to talk to us about how she has taken a human-centered design approach to working with nonprofits and is making change happen. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. And we've been having technical difficulties, so really glad you're you're still on the line. <laughs> All part of this past year. Emily, please, please, please tell us your story. How have you gotten to where you are today? Well, so it's interesting because I started out for a long time in my career in the, the for-profit world. Um, I did a lot of, uh, I was an industrial designer, focused uh, mostly on packaging and, you know, packaging all sorts of consumer goods and uh, always volunteered and always had um, just sort of this, my eyes set on doing doing more good, being more mission focused. And I had an opportunity to, to do a switch and I took it. Um, so I've Throughout the last four or five years, I've been consulting for nonprofits and taking a lot of what I've learned in the, the for-profit world, my human-centered design background, and translating it into a way that helps nonprofits package the work that they do and, and rethink how people are perceiving their brands, why they're supporting them, uh, and really helping them gain more passionate supporters. So when you went into the the nonprofit, did you go in knowing you were going to be bringing this human-centered approach, or is this something that you worked your way into? I've, I've actually, it's a, almost the reverse. So I started knowing I wanted to bring a human-centered approach to nonprofits. It's, it's been something nonprofits have been talking a lot about because they they are so people-focused and um, you know, all the work revolves around people. Um, so, so ultimately, you know, nonprofits should be human centered. Um, but as I got into it, I realized the, I mean, the approach that I was used to is very consumer centric. You know, how do you get somebody to understand a brand and a product and purchase it, uh, where nonprofits had to take in a lot of different points of view, um, different stakeholders, their board, their funders. Yes. So. <laughs> So yeah, I've I've spent that time less and less calling it human-centered design, but taking those principles and translating them in a way that's meaningful for nonprofits. So tell us what that looks like. You know, when I when I first started, I really focused on kind of a five-step uh, human-centered design process. So you know, it's about re doing some research and reframing. Oh my gosh, now I'm not even going to remember because I've I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I put you, you know, on the spot. <laughs> but it involves, you know, like pulling pulling different stakeholders together, stakeholders together and and coming up with creative solu- you know, creative solutions for your challenges and then prototyping and testing them. And so um as I've gone through, you know, for nonprofits, risk is is a big deal. And so I've had to to change it around a little bit, not necessarily the process, but the way I talk about it, because um you know, testing is like a forbidden word in the nonprofit yeah. space. And it costs um, money. Yeah. And taking a step back and doing research before 
you identify the problem can can really seem like it's a, a big barrier because of cost and resources. Yep. So um, I focus on on four principles with the work that I do, and one is listening and and really trying you know doing that is the research that is the design research, you know finding different ways to interview or survey your stakeholders so that you can really try to better understand the problem you're trying to solve, finding ways to to break down the barriers uh, and and build connections. So um, you know, a lot of the human-centered work that I've done in the past is around finding, you know, not just the functional things that people want to, you know, you know, are in people's ways to purchase a product, but also emotional. And so, um, you know, how do we find some of those, you know, emotional elements that really connect people with a nonprofit and and call them out so that we can use them as tools? Uh, and then, guide. The third is guiding and and really making sure you're moving people from one stage to the next. And then I, instead of prototyping and testing, I call it thinking like a scientist. Nice. Um, because, you know, that's what scientists have to answer big, tough questions. And they don't go out there thinking they know the answer. They come up with hypotheses and test them. And that's really, um, you know, when we're dealing with people and, and motivation, I think that is a, a great mindset for getting new ideas out there, seeing what works, and then putting your resources into, into those that, that are really going to get you the donations, the support that you need. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot. No, that was great. And actually, just to take a step back, you, you made me think of something when you were talking about stakeholders. You know, we do stakeholder interviews a lot. And is have you found ways to get that emotional component out of them in a creative way versus a lot of times it's like, yeah, we're going to ask these six questions and see what happens and kind of dig in. Have you done anything or found anything that has helped in terms of getting more of that um, outside the box thinking with them? Well, I, I'm a big fan of the five whys, you know, really digging into to motivations, but that only goes as well as people can articulate yep. their their motivations. So I like to talk to them about specific situations. You know, when did they start going to a particular nonprofit event? When did they start um, donating? And and talking about how they feel in those particular scenarios and asking things in different ways. So I, I kind of go through and ask the same same question a few different ways. So it might be, you know, how did you, you know, enjoy this picnic event? Um, you know, what what made you want to come? But then also trying to pull together other other interactions. You know, maybe they they did donate and and what were their thoughts there? Because um, it can all builds together into one perception around an organization and their feeling around it. Yeah. It's it's really interesting how you've taken a discipline and retooled it, for lack of better words, to make it appropriate and still work in a different type of, of an environment. Yeah, it's taken it taken some time, and I'm sure it will always keep evolving. But I I feel the process is is really good, and so it's just a matter of of trying to make it um, to translate it. Yep. Yeah. Do you have any? success stories that you could share of how this has worked in such a risk adverse 
field? Sure. I, um, so I had a client that was, it was an arts organization, an arts incubator, um, and they were really trying to figure out how to grow support for their, their mission, you know, get more, get more local people to donate and support this, this beautiful space they had that, that found, you know, up and coming artists and really helped them grow. Uh, and they, they had these amazing events because they had this access to, you know, amazing sculptural artists, performers, poets, they could throw these amazing events. And as we started talking to their audience and, and getting some of that, um, that sort of initial research, that listening component, we found that they were thinking about those events. They were kind of in their minds getting them mixed up with entertainment instead of philanthropy. Ah. And so, um, you know, rightly so. They were really mm -hmm. making these amazing events and putting a lot of work into them. Uh, and so that was that was the listening part. And so what what we did was go through and put together three three different prototypes of messaging that they could say to their audience. Um, and so that was sort of our our prototyping, if you will. And they went out and then in different events would say different messaging uh, and and use a different element each time. Um, and in doing so, they were able to develop a message, a winning message that they could then talk to people about what they did behind the scenes. You know, what 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 would they do with donations that came in? Um, what was the history of the space? And you know, why was it important to this community? And so they they tested those and were able to pull it together to create, as I mentioned, a, a winning message. Um, that they can now use ongoing for their events to help bring people from entertainment to philanthropy. I think that's really interesting because you were able, and maybe this is something that's like specific to the nonprofit, but you were able to like research and test it live, you know, because it's kind of like you had everything to win, not that much to lose. So you were able to go out and test it at these actual events. Yeah, and I think the key was to really identify the problem. Like people weren't, it wasn't that they didn't care. They just didn't, they weren't thinking about philanthropy at a time when they were having a lot of fun and drinking yeah, wine. watching and, a cool show, yeah. So they needed to be guided to that stage of engagement. What's actually nice about that too is that you just did it. It wasn't mm -hmm. a big, complicated, you know, overthought process. It's about talking to the consumer, the customer, the 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 donor about what is resonating with them most. So it's 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 really nice to actually see that because I know and I've I actually have sat on the board of a couple um, nonprofits and a lot of times it's really just getting the group to say yes, let's try something and let's just go do and see what people say. And sometimes that's the biggest hurdle. So that was great that you're able to do it and and what a perfect you know, situation to be able to do it in because it's appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's relevant. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's pretty low cost for them. They just have to to come up with the concepts yeah. and, and do it. Yeah. And a lot of times you can get a, an agency to help you with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, that was part of, I, I do coaching uh, programs. And so that was part of me helping teach them the process of doing this so that they could test it out themselves. Nice. 
Have you always considered yourself innovative or an innovator? Maybe not exactly in those words, but but I would say yes. I've always been a creative thinker, and so I like to see what isn't working and then think about it in a ton of different ways. I I really like. I think in college I heard of this term functional fixedness and how people often see things as one one thing and what it was meant for and. And I have loved to always challenge that and say, well, what if it was, you know, a hat or, yeah, you know, yeah. a cup and, and sort of so rethinking things for what they could be versus what they are. I don't know where that came from, but I have always enjoyed, enjoyed doing that. I think functional, this idea of functional fixedness, it's, I've never heard this term before, but I think it's really interesting to think about innovation that way because a lot of times I feel like innovators are thinking about unsolved challenges or like future problems where they have to come up with something so new and so different, but really this, maybe the solution is right there in front of you or the materials are right there in front of you and you just have to think about them in a different way. Yeah, I, I love that idea because... I think this idea that everything has to be new and different gets it gets hard and it, you don't know if it'll work and it it can be kind of draining. But I always, you know, I always uh, emphasize with my clients that sometimes you just need to bring in what seems like a new thing. Um, so, for instance, with this past year, you know, I heard a lot about uh, clients losing email lists or email uh, followers. Um, because as the pandemic went on, people just got tired of, you know, they really had time to sort through their email inbox and just focus on what matters. And it was a really great time to go back to mail and direct mail and connect with people because they weren't getting as many ads. Um, and so obviously mail is not a new way to connect with people, but in the context, it felt fresh and new yep. um, yeah. because it wasn't something people were just sick of. That's yeah. really interesting. Ellen's probably going to say what I'm about to say, but we've seen a cross category uh, return to like older, simpler methods because people are connecting in those more authentic ways that we used to do years ago. We actually just received what I thought was a handwritten letter. And after further inspection, it wasn't, but it made me take notice. And it was from like a window place and it was, it looked like it was handwritten and I couldn't figure out how they did it. But it was it was computer generated, but it totally and I, I read it because of that. So there's definitely something about that. It's not mm -hmm. something that you're used to. And I definitely will admit that I was one of the people that like every couple of weeks would go through and say unsubscribe, unsubscribe, because I just it's like I it's not worth it. It's just too much. Too yeah, much. The brain explodes. Yes, it does. Yeah. And in the functional fi fixedness piece is interesting, too. And that's not a term I had ever heard, but. You know, I, I, I've seen a lot or, and, or participated in a lot of improvisation, uh, workshops and, or training. And one of the things that I find really impactful is that those, those types of exercises that force you to think differently. So you have a stick, what could it be? And it's like mm -hmm. one part, like it could be, I could dig with it. I could use it as a cane. You just, and you have to keep coming up with new ways. You force yourself to do it. And that's not natural for a lot of people. It's hard for them to do that. And some people it's easy. And it there's something to me that's interesting because people, some people just lose that 
over time. Like kids, most kids are able to do that. And it, and some, you know, it just kind of goes away. They become fixed in, in the now versus the what could be and or the why. So it's, it's, you know, for me, it's really, that's a piece that's really important in terms of being innovative is to be able to, you know, look at it, come at it from a different point of view, turn it upside down. What else could it be? What else could it do? So I love that term. Yeah. Reapply it. And I, I think a lot of people, I see this a lot in the nonprofit world. You, as, as you build efficiencies in your organization, you you have to kind of make a lot of assumptions and decisions. Um, and so, you know, it, because it adds speed. If you know, okay, we only use email, we only connect with people this way. Yeah. They always donate, you know, by clicking the $50 button. Um, and it, it makes things fast. But if you keep doing it, you know, we're all humans. And so I think we like things to change. We like things to, to be a little different because that's connection. Um, and so the, a lot of times I have to, to help nonprofits see the assumptions that they're making. Just as an example, I was working with an organization that's a museum and they they sent out a donation campaign and got very little response back and they got very discouraged. And as I was talking to her about why uh, they felt it wasn't working and she said, well, you know, we're not, we're a museum. We're not an essential nonprofit, like, like a social, you know, social worker or someone, you know, feeding homeless might, might be. And so she said, well, people just don't think we're as important. And and I kind of had to stop her and say, like, do you know that? Or is that an assumption that you're making? And and she immediately was like, oh, it's totally an assumption, you know, based on just the being in the sector and seeing, you know, what, what she saw. But that doesn't mean that her audience doesn't care about what, what they do. And so we came up with a whole list of other reasons they might not have participated in the campaign. And in doing that, we were able to go through and say, like, which ones do you have control over? Because obviously, if someone, if they lost their job, like you, you know, let's not let's not pester them for money by any means. But but there might be people not understanding that you still have expenses even if you're closed, mm-hmm. or you're still doing awesome work towards your mission even though your doors aren't open. And and so helping helping those donors like understand that uh, can be another way to get there. That's great. I think of that like in the whole functional fixedness of like you kind of have to break through and see all the options before you can really decide, you know, before you're just assuming what what the the function is. Exactly. Yeah. So something I heard you talk about at one point was looking at things from a functional, emotional, and a cultural need standpoint. And that cultural piece to me was really interesting. And can you talk more about how you how you approach that? What does that mean to you and to what you're what you're working on? Yeah. So the those three elements are part of part of a human-centered design process and this idea of jobs to be done and that people have, you know, they have all sorts of needs and this just helps categorize them a little bit. You know, we know there's functional needs. People need things to be easy, they need to understand them. They have emotional needs, they need to feel connected. Uh, and, you know, part of something, part of something bigger than themselves wanted. But then cultural, uh, this is something that I just see a lot, especially as we each have our own way of getting information. 
Um, and so cultural might be something like using using words like if you say fossil fuels and you're a sustainable, sustainability-minded organization, culturally people are gonna take, you know, greenhouse gases, all those things, like people are gonna take those in different ways based on the their culture of what they're reading, what the what their news tells them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that is definitely I'm I'm kind of focusing on uh more of a conservative or, or liberal culture, but you obviously also have um, people coming from different backgrounds, um, different economic levels. They might have a different idea of what it means to support an organization. Um, and, and so you really have to understand how the words and what you're saying and your message is perceived because, you know, people think about them in different ways. I've, I've heard some nonprofits talk about the the Reagan era donor, and and there was definitely Whoa. this mindset. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, there was this mindset that you, you know, in that era that you just donated. You didn't necessarily um, have to have a whole notion of what was done with that money. Um, you just something was important to you, and you donated when they asked, and that was just a process. You know, let's say what. Well, just as an example, I, I walked with my father into a, a free bookstore that's around the corner from me. And I just go in there all the time and take books and drop books off. My dad went in there, picked one book up, and then he like gave the guy a $10 bill. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't understand why he was doing that. I'm like, this is free, dad. Um, and, and so I think there's just a different mentality to donating that used to be a lot more cut and dry. Um, whereas younger donors really want to be part of something. They want to know that they're connecting, uh, that they're helping, and that they're making the best use of the limited funds they have. And so, you know, that can be a generational cultural difference that that you just need to figure out how, um, you know, what sort of stories and information the your audience needs and, and the who you're focusing on. I also think it's like, what's their motivation? Like, if you're donating because that's what you do, that kind of feels like a self-serving motivation. Like you want to feel good about it. But if you're donating and want to see, well, I could see it both ways. But if you're donating and want to see what happens and actually make a change, that feels like maybe you have a different motivation. Yeah. Or, you know, you want to be more involved and, yeah. and take time out of your day to be like, what's really going on? How do we fix this problem? And even, um, you know, I see a lot with even just, donors wanting to participate in some of the the solutions you know what is is what we did before the right solution or can we lose that functional fixedness and think of something you know a new solution that might be better yeah that's that's great and i i I will say from a you know co-host standpoint we always are looking functional and um, emotional and a lot of the cultural piece comes in through trend work, but I think you're taking it a step far further. And that's something that's really interesting. And I think actually makes a lot of sense to be added into uh, when you're really getting into insights and understanding, you know, how you need to position something back. It's very, very insightful. Have you actually, have you ever had a situation where when you've been working with nonprofits that you've really been trying to push something forward and had a roadblock? Or had a big struggle that 
you just weren't able to overcome or you were able to overcome? And like, what was it that you were able to do to be successful? Um, let's see. I, you know, I feel like a lot of the challenges are just, you know, getting, getting to do enough work to make, make the change because a lot of this stuff takes time. Um, let's see. I am, I'm working with a client right now where we are, uh, we're helping to increase routine vaccines with children. So not, not COVID related. Um, and, you know, so far we've done some of the research behind it and interviewing around different states to try to figure out what is, what is keeping people from getting to the doctor, staying up on their routine vaccines. And it's, it's a huge, you know, when we talk about culture, it's a huge cultural challenge. There's a lot of people who are questioning the need for vaccines and um, whether it's what they, maybe from a more conservative point of view of, you know, how the, the vaccines were created, how, how safe it is. Um, is this, you know, is this safe for my child? Or do, can Big Pharma tell me what to do? All the way to like, very highly educated people that have, you know, done their own research and, and have a point of view already established. And so I think this is a situation where it's a very big cultural hur hurdle to overcome. And how we're taking a look at it is just, you know, getting the, the lowest hanging fruits. How do you start moving people slowly um, and building trust with them so that you can get the people that are maybe on the fence and can be um, can be shown more information and better understand, uh, you know, the importance of vaccines, um, and and then just kind of keep picking away at it uh, without trying to overcome the big hurdle of of changing people's mindsets that have, you know, feel very set in the sand of that yeah established because yeah. you're really because at the end of the day you're influencing mm -hmm. you're influencing them to change behavior and to your point i could definitely see just thinking about you know people that to your point who are set in their ways or you know who have such a firm belief that you could shake them and you know tell them this is true and it's not going to change their behavior um that's a big one to tackle actually yeah, that, that was that's, very. I was like, that's <laughs> impressive because that would be a big one to tackle. Yeah, <laughs> please yeah, keep working on that one. one. <laughs> no, that's Definitely. great. What would be something you would consider like your greatest success, where you've really done something fabulous and you've really been proud about how how it turned out? Yeah, well, and and I feel like there's always you know, everything's always these sort of ongoing wins. But one thing that comes to mind is a, a recent workshop I did uh, where I had, I was taking people through my process of guiding your audience and really understanding how people um, perceive your organization and how you build up that understanding. Um, and so with these 80 people, we, we created a pseudo organization, a pseudo nonprofit, and walked through uh, step by step how that organization could guide its followers towards making a donation and not expecting them to understand right away, but helping them bit by bit get a little more information, a little more connection. Um, and I was really, really proud. I got um, the highest review uh, that they, they'd had for these workshops that they've been doing. 
Uh, so it was just really, it was really great. And I think partially we, we didn't just do a Zoom call. We, we worked together. We used a whiteboard. We problem solved together and um, people were able to participate with ideas. Uh, and again, you know, like that idea of, of functional fixedness, we just tried to rethink what, what a workshop could be virtually. And, uh, and it just, it, it went really well. And it was, it was great participation as well. Yeah. That's great. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. Have you considered taking something like that? So the idea of helping a group of people understand how their organization is being perceived and actually taking it out of nonprofit into the corporate world, that, that to me seems like something that a lot of corporations could use some help with because you have, you have your leaders who are driving the boat and everybody else is on board, but you know, I know you, there, you've seen all the surveys. They send the survey out and it's like a temperature check and people may or may not answer them or they may or may not answer them. Honestly, I just wonder if you've ever considered taking something like that, that simulation and doing it on the client or on the corporate side. I, I haven't, you know, I've spent, like I mentioned the last couple of years translating this to nonprofit, but I am a big believer in the blurred space between for-profit and nonprofit, and because you're seeing it more, you're seeing these B corps, you're seeing social enterprises. There's there's all different kinds of things that are combining some of that, and it 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 is just making me realize that there's there's less difference than I originally thought. There is the cultural difference of how you talk about what words you use, you know, testing and consumer, but but once you make that translation, the work itself is very similar, and and I agree. I think that idea of of guiding and and one of the key elements uh, as I'm doing these these guiding coaching programs that I'm really realizing is that it's it's about teams working together. Yeah. Um, and and that is the same no matter if you're a nonprofit or for profit. You have to, you know, if you're bringing people in through social media, that social media person needs to know how they are bringing those people to make the next step and you know, how the event planners or whoever comes next is then thinking about how they fit into this bigger puzzle of, of guiding people to the ultimate goal, which is, you know, donating or purchasing a product. Yeah, it's, right. It's, exactly. There's definitely differences, but there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. I think your comment about the line, like continuing to blur is really interesting. Cause if you think about all the brands having social responsibilities yeah and how that's like point of entry these days in a lot of categories I think that's a really interesting thing to think about yeah well I find it with with my own work having been in the for-profit space and and I think what happens is when your goal is money yeah it's it's a little hard to stay focused you kind of chase the dollars you um, don't really know what will work and so you throw a lot of things out there but ultimately, whether you're a for-profit or a nonprofit, when you have a mission, it really helps people focus on, okay, you know, we want to be the best uh, car brand out there, wh whatever it might be. We're going to sell um, the most beautiful pencils in the world. Um, I'm looking at things in my office. So, um, <laughs> beautiful pencils. Yeah. And, and so about like when a pink calculator, the best oh, yeah. pink beautiful. calculator. <laughs> Definitely. 
those, those graphic calculators. Um, and so when you have, like when everyone can picture the same goal and vision in their mind, it really, it really helps teams align. And I think it, it gets into that motivation. Why am I doing this? Why am I waking up every day and doing this work? Um, and so I think that's a really great lesson that for-profits can take away from nonprofits. Yep. It also forces them to, to stay honest and genuine. And it kind of wraps back up to what we were talking before about how a lot of consumers today are looking for that social purpose and it's something that they can care about. And when a company is delivering that in an honest and genuine way, because it does ladder back up to their mission, it's much more believable. And, and you then get people who are much more willing to buy into it and, and stay loyal and have that connection, which is really great. Yeah, I think people are very used to being able to know anything they want to know about a company. And so, yeah, that I think that idea of a mission really keeps you honest and, and focused so that if someone, you know, finds finds your article on Wikipedia, it, it matches back up to what you're saying. Exactly, you're exactly. Yeah. So you have a magic wand and you're able to impact any industry from an innovation standpoint, what industry would it be to change, to make change happen? I would love to see the social media industry, if that's not too large. Oh, uh, it's big. Yeah, to, <laughs> to change. I just think, um, you know, I've seen a lot of struggle the last year of people um, being able to have a voice and and share comments and and give all this feedback, but I um, I think we're we're losing that sense of community and and I'm trying to think how I would want it to innovate, but I just feel like social media has gotten so disconnected. Everything you know, you can say stuff without having it be true. Yeah. Um, and so I'd really like to see again. Innovation means like we don't necessarily how we're going to get there. Yeah, have right. solutions, but um, I would love to see how it becomes more, more human and builds relationships rather than separates them. That's great. The community's gotten so big; it's no longer it's no community. longer a community. Well, yeah. I do a lot of community work in my neighborhood, and even in a small you know, a few blocks of neighborhood, it's, it's really hard to connect with people. And so the more distance you put between people, the, uh, I think the harder it is to, to trust people. And, and when we don't trust people, we don't believe them. And, and it just builds this, you know, these little silos that, that don't allow people to work together. Yeah. Yeah. They become counterproductive too. And sometimes damaging to different people, <sighs> which is sad. Um, yeah. so yeah, sort of opened up a big can of, <laughs> I know I'm like, think, now I'm like digging into it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and there's a reason a lot of people were depressed last year. It wasn't just COVID anyway. Yeah. So we have one last question for you today. The name of our podcast is hunting for Nova Sparkus. And the reason we named it that is because we are always on the search for what what is sparking new ideas in people? So we are wondering what's 
been sparking new ideas from you? What words of wisdom do you have that could spark an idea in someone else? And just something to leave us to think about as we finish this conversation. Sure. I, I love um, one of my personal mission for doing the work that I do is to help people step outside of their expertise in order to connect with others. Um, part of some of the things I've been talking about, I think as we you know, create these little worlds and knowledge for ourselves, we build up these silos that don't allow us to connect and communicate to other people. And so I would say to always make time to step outside of the work that you do and connect with someone very different from you. Uh, you know, it could be forcing yourself to, to have a conversation uh, with a, a neighbor you've never met or a relative you disagree with, uh, but, but to constantly do that maybe once a month and, uh, and really try to see the world from their perspective because mm -hmm. we are all in our own little bubbles and, and no one really has ownership on you know, truth and reality. So the more we can see different ways to view the world, I think it'll be a better place. Yeah, I, I love that, especially starting to come out of the pandemic. I noticed that happening to me, especially during the pandemic, because I was only seeing the people who I see all the time and who I already know I have shared feelings and shared thoughts with, because those were the people you were allowed to see. And I found myself missing those spontaneous conversations with people who I don't know, and I don't know their opinions, and they may have different thoughts and lives than me so I think that extra showed how important that is well and the, the the diversity of thinking also helps you or keeps you thinking differently like yeah. that in itself is is a fabulous reason for doing exactly that Emily and taking that step back and and listening to others and, and looking at their point of view as opposed to not seeking to understand and assuming and you know mm -hmm. being caught in complacency yeah, you need to figure out where where you're making assumptions or where people are sort of guiding your point of view to all think the same way about something. Um, and, and I think it just helps us focus on what's important and striving to find the, the truth. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. Genius. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you ladies. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If Hunting for Nova Spark has tapped into your curiosity or sparked any new thinking, check us out and get in touch with us at cohocreative.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Coho Creative. 